Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Jesus gets to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. He started back in chapter 5, it goes through chapter 6, it goes through chapter 7. And what we said last week was, he ends up the Sermon on the Mount with four warnings. Four warnings, and these four warnings come in pairs. So he's going to compare and contrast two, two different things. Um, And so what we did last week, we looked at the first contrast, or the first warning, and it was about two roads. There was the narrow road that leads to life, and there was the broad road that leads to destruction. That was the first of the conclusion of his sermon. And really what we said last week was there's no middle ground with Jesus. You're either lost or you're saved. There's, There's no middle ground. Uh, there's no limbo. There's no in-between. You're, you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're either lost or you're either saved. You're either a Christian you're not a Christian. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. And so what we're going to look at tonight, hopefully, are the last three warnings. Tree, two types of trees, two types of professions, and two types of builders. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 15 with the two types of trees. We're not going to spend as long on this. I probably could have spent a long time, but I really want to get to verses 21 through 23, and that's where I want to spend most of my time tonight because I think that we need to spend a lot of time on that passage of Scripture. So let's look at verses 15 through 20. Remember, Jesus has just said, Enter by the narrow gate. The, the narrow gate leads to life, and few find it. Broad is the great gate that leads to destruction, and many are on it. And so let's, let's pick up in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now Jesus here is explicitly warning against false prophets. Because what does he say in verse 15? Beware of false prophets. There were false prophets in Jesus' day. There have been false prophets the past 2,000 years of church history, and there are false prophets today. Now, does a false prophet show up at church with a name tag that says, Hello, my name is Wolf. No, they show up in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And so Jesus says, okay, there's two types of fruit. You're, you're going to know these false teachers by their fruit. So you will know them by their, by their fruit, what proves out in the long run. And so let me give you a passage of Scripture from 1 Timothy where Paul warns against false teachers. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5. Paul writes this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine 
and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. There are people that are going to be false prophets. So let's, let's give three observations about this. Number one, false teachers do not come in announcing they're false teachers. They're smarter than that. They appear innocent and harmless, but what does Jesus say? They are ravenous wolves, which leads to point number two. What's their desire ultimately? To destroy and to devour. And the primary way to recognize them is by their fruits. And he makes this comparison between a good tree produces good fruit, a diseased tree produces bad fruit. You will know them by their fruits. Now, this specifically deals with, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to get to something a little bit more related to us. Hopefully nobody in this room is a false teacher or a false prophet. But we need to be aware of false prophets and false teachers. Paul even says in Galatians chapter 1, if an angel comes and preaches a different gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Okay? What I want to get to are the scariest words from Jesus' mouth in all of Scripture. And I've been thinking about these for the past two weeks, and we're going to spend a lot of time because I think we need to. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, two claims. This is the third warning. As Jesus brings his sermon to a close, he's already talked about the narrow road, the wide road. He's talked about the good tree, the bad tree. And now he's getting to this whole idea of two claims. So let's read carefully. And I want you to read this carefully. We're going to look at this carefully because every word matters in 21 through 23. Here's what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, after warning his disciples about false teachers, Jesus is now warning his disciples about self-delusion or self-deceit, or false conversions. So let me ask you a very basic question. Is there a difference between a profession of faith and a possession of faith? We live in a culture of easy believism. Listen to these terms and see if these are biblical terms or if you've heard these terms. These terms are what we hear in our culture, but they don't actually get to the heart of the gospel. Just ask Jesus into your heart. Just pray this prayer. If you come to Jesus, you can have your best life now. 
Jesus will improve your life and you will never have any problems. Jesus wants you to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous. I'm forgiven. I got my get out of hell free card so I can do whatever I want. God has a wonderful plan for your life. You're okay with God. Just do whatever you want to do. Just make this quick decision. Try Jesus out. He won't disappoint you. Come forward at the altar call and really be sincere about your decision. Okay. All of those are professions of faith. But you can do all of those and not actually be saved. What is conversion? You guys tell me, what is conversion? Or what is a true salvation experience? You, you tell me. Okay, so it's, say that again. Okay, so it's a um, giving your life to Christ. What was that? Okay, does obedience save you or is it a... Res- okay, but true salvation will show itself in obedience. Okay, so repentance. Is that what you meant? Turning away from sin, repentance. Okay, what, what is true conversion? Okay, so how would you say that? Like faith, have, having faith in Christ? Faith in Christ, God, God's grace coming to you in, in the gift of salvation. Those are all right, but you're missing one big one. Those are all true. What does God say happens to a person when they get saved? They get a new heart. The heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation we've been born again and so if we truly have been converted we are going to profess faith in christ but we're also going to possess faith in christ and those two things are going to prove themselves out over the long haul why because you've been changed from the inside out by a work of supernatural grace now we need to be very careful that we don't take this verse out of context because what does it sound like If you don't do God's will, you won't go to heaven. Yes. But what does it not mean? Jesus is not saying that we're saved by works, but our salvation should prove itself out in good works. Let me give you three scriptures that bear that out. The, probably the best one is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We often look at 2, 8 and 9, but let's look at all three verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Okay, we stop right there, right? Salvation is a free gift of grace from first to last. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were saved by grace to walk in good works. And walk means a full lifetime, not just occasional here and there. Okay, what does James say? 
James 2, 17 through 19. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. He's teaching salvation by grace results in a lifetime of works. Does that make sense? Okay. Luke 6.46 Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Now, I want us to look at this passage of Scripture very carefully because I want you to see who Jesus is talking about. Remember, everything's in contrast, right? There's two roads we've looked at. The narrow road, the wide road. There's two types of trees. There's a good tree and a bad tree. Now there's two types of people. Let's look at these two types of people that Jesus explains. Okay, let's read it very carefully. Not everyone who says to me, what? Lord, Lord. Here's the first thing that's scary about this. These people are theologically accurate. What are they calling Jesus? Lord. Why is this important? These aren't pagans living in the deep, dark jungles of Africa or South America or India. These aren't rank atheists who have rejected God. Shockingly, these are people with correct theology about Jesus. They call him Lord. Correct belief, listen carefully, correct belief about Jesus does not make you a Christian. (gasps) Now, you can't be a Christian without correct belief about Jesus, but listen to this. Demons have sound theology. Every time a demon encounters Jesus in the Gospels, the the demon knows who Jesus is. The disciples do not. Mark 1.24, the demon says, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon speaks truth, right? Is the demon saved? No, he's a demon. Matthew 8.29, And behold, they cried out, The legion of demons, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Why have you come to torment us before the time? Demons have correct theology. Correct theology about Jesus is absolutely crucial for salvation, but alone it is not enough. There are many people in our world that have correct beliefs about Jesus. Meaning what? You go to an atheist today and you ask them, Do you believe Jesus was a historical person? Yes. Do you believe that he lived 33 years in Nazareth and was born in Bethlehem and and preached around the countryside? Yes. Do you even believe he died on a cross? Yes. Do you believe he rose again? I struggle with that, but there may be some scientific evidence. Do you believe the historical facts about Jesus? Yes. There are a lot of people who have correct beliefs about Jesus, but they're not saved. Does that bother anybody? There's a lot of people that have correct theology. They may even call Jesus Lord and not be saved. Secondly, they are emotionally passionate about Jesus. Notice the repetition. What do they say? Lord, Lord. 
Lord, Lord. Now, I'm not saying that when you get saved, you, that emotions don't play a part in that and that God doesn't get you excited, but you can be passionate about Jesus without being saved. Have you seen a lot of people that got excited about Jesus? I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. And I can tell you, I can, count, I can, I can mention kids tonight because I look at their Facebook as 28-year-olds that were like 15-year-olds when they were in my youth group who passionately raised their hands in worship and went to the altar and cried at the end of camp and, and confessed that they're never going to, you know, their true love waits, they're never going to have sex before marriage and all this type of stuff. They were passionate for Jesus. And yet today you look at their life and a lot of them are totally denying Christ. So you can go to a football event and see passion. There's a difference between godly passion and mere human enthusiasm. And sometimes this is hard to discern. So before we go any further, I want to give three things that we must be on guard against if our profession and faith is to be genuine. Okay? Correct theology is not enough. You need correct theology to be saved, but that's not enough. You can have correct theology and not be saved. Being passionate about a Jesus is important, but it's not enough. You can be passionate about Jesus and not be saved. So, there is a danger in being what is called a nominal Christian. Nominal means a Christian in name only. Okay, this is a person who says they're a Christian because they were born in a Christian family. They believe in God. They believe in God, Grandma, and apple pie. I mean, they're basically, you know, I was born in America, and that makes me a Christian. I was baptized as a child, and... And, and so, really, here's the thing about a nominal Christian. They may even put, like, on a form when they fill it out, they may even check mark Christian. But the only time you ever see them in church is at Christmas and Easter. And their, their being a Christian is basically based upon their birth. I'm Christian by birth because I was born in a Christian family. I was confirmed. I was baptized as a baby. They're a Christian in name only, but there's no fruit they're not um, atheists. They may give token lip service to the Bible and morality, but yet, and they claim to be a Christian. I would say the large majority of people living in northeastern Colorado fit this description. It's not like we have a bunch of rank pagans out there. We've got a lot of good religious people that say they're Christian by name, but don't have any evidence of true conversion. Okay? Here's a second category that's even more scary. There are those who hold a sound theology, attend church regularly, and are active in telling people that they are Christians, but they've never truly been saved. You think there's people like that? They're not nominal Christians. They come to church. They're active in church. They may come every Sunday, but there's no fruit in their life. There's also others who profess faith in Christ, they may even call Him Lord, but they live a double lifestyle of hypocrisy. They attend church and tell everyone they're a Christian, but when they go out in the world, they deliberately live a double life. What must be evident to prove the true fruit of salvation? Is it good theology, as important as that is? 
Is it being passionate about Jesus as good as that is? Is it attending church? Is it even saying that you're a Christian? What does Jesus say? Let's read it. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. So what gets you into heaven? Salvation by grace. But what defines a true Christian? How does Jesus define a true Christian? The one who does the will of the Father. Which brings up a lot of questions. We've got to ask, what does that mean? What do you mean, Jesus, when you say it's the one who does the will of the Father? What does it actually mean? Let me give you some ideas here of what I think it means. It means believing in Christ and submitting to his will as revealed in the Bible. What does it mean to do the will of the Father? How do you know God's will? How has God revealed his will to us? In the scriptures. So you don't just give lip service to the Bible, but you live under the authority of the Bible and you obey the Bible. It's, 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 your, it's not just a, a good book that's on your shelf. It's your very life. It means you also confess sin, you avoid sin, and you try to obey the totality of God's word. It means that you delight in God's law and your inner being. Romans 7.22, Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Wow, they're loud out there, aren't they? It means to hate sin. Psalm 119, 128, Therefore I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore my soul keeps them. It involves a daily desire to kill sin and bring your desires into submission to the written word of God. Now at this point, you may be asking a question. Does that mean perfection or consistency? None of us are ever going to be perfect. Can Christians sin? Yes. Do Christians sin? Do Christians commit grievous sins? Yes. But here's the key difference. The one who does the will of God is never at peace with sin as that of a person who's lost. The saved person hates his sin, mourns over her sin, fights the sin, begs God to be free of the sin through the power of the cross. It's as much as a desire as it is repentance. Now, scandalous major sins are rare. I'm not saying they don't happen, but they're rare in true believers. It doesn't mean we can't commit them or that we don't commit them, but they're not the overall pattern of our lives. Now let me ask you a question. What one character in the Bible can you think of in the Old Testament that committed a major sin? I mean, there's a lot of them, but who, who do we look at and said, man, that guy broke a lot of them? David, okay? David committed murder. David committed adultery. Okay, how many times did David commit adultery? Once. 
with Bathsheba. Those other women were not considered, those were actually allowed by God under the, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 those, those weren't adulteries. It wasn't he was stealing other people's wives. Those were actually his wives. He was allowed to have those wives. Okay. Yeah, we may not understand all that. But David committed adultery with Bathsheba once. And how did he respond? When Nathan, we looked at this last week. When Nathan came to him, what did he do? He mourned it, he confessed it, he repented it, and never did it again. So he committed a grievous sin, but it wasn't the pattern of his life. Okay? So I'm not saying that true Christians can't commit grievous sins. I'm just saying that if you look at the overall pattern of a Christian's life, the overall pattern is that of hating sin, mourning sin, repenting sin, desiring to be free of sin. You're not at peace with sin. Does, does that make sense? Because 1 John 1, 6 says this, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the first thing we saw is these people are theologically accurate. That they, they recognize Jesus as Lord. There's no, there's no, they're, they're not a pagan calling him some weird thing. They, they recognize who he is theologically. Number two, they're passionate. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? But here's the third thing. They appeal to their ministry success. On that day, look at verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, here's the scary thing. Jesus says there will be how many? Many, okay? There, on that day, many. Now, don't ask me how many is many, but Jesus says many. I think that what he's about to say here in verse 22 could apply to you guys. But I think in the context of teaching about false prophets, I think he's making it very specific that he's talking about largely ministry leaders. Because he appeals, these people appeal to works of ministry. Ministry leaders. He lists three supernatural things that these people are doing. Now, it could appeal to the average everyday Christian, but in that time and day, not everybody prophesied or cast out demons or did miracles. So three things. They prophesied in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in Jesus' name, and they performed mighty miracles in Jesus' name. That's ministry. That's New Testament ministry. Casting out demons, preaching, prophesying, working miracles and healings, things like that. So let's look at the first one of these. These false professors claim that they prophesied in Jesus' name. Now, here's a question. Can someone actually prophesy in Jesus' name and not be in Christ? Can a lost person preach? Are there pastors and televangelists who stand up every Sunday morning and preach God's word but are lost? You bet you. That's scary. I can think, can you think of a, 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 a number of large, larger-than-life, word-of-faith televangelists who've built large ministries on prophetic preaching, miracles, anointing, casting out demons, but if you look at their lifestyle and you look at their theology, it's rank heresy and they're living immoral lifestyles. But yet they have successful TV ministries. There's a lot of them. 
So just because you have ministry success doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because people flock to hear you preach or just because you cast out a demon or just because you did a miracle doesn't mean you're saved. No matter how, quote, anointed or successful or even powerful a teacher or pastor or ministry is, that's no solid proof of authentic conversion. You can look at dozens of ministries right now and say, man, that, people say that's an anointed ministry, that's a powerful ministry, that's a successful ministry. A lot of people are flocking to that church. That person is of God. But then when you look at their theology and you look at what they believe and how they, they live, they deny the dogma of our faith. They don't have sound theology. So just because they're a good preacher or a good prophet or can prophesy doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're a Christian. Now, what's the second thing Jesus says? These self-deceived people claim to have cast out demons in Jesus' name. Do you know who did this? Did you know Judas cast out demons? Judas cast out demons. Matthew 10, 1. Jesus called to him his 12 disciples. Who was included in that? And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every disease and every affliction. And if you remember in Luke chapter 10, they come back from doing that and they're excited that they got to cast out demons. Judas cast out demons. But we know his fate. Was Judas saved? No. Jesus says in part of the last days, Matthew 24, 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If possible. Not that it would happen. If you're truly of God, if you're truly one of the elect, if you're truly saved, you're not going to be led astray. But these false teachers will come and do some things that are amazing. False signs, false ministry, you know, false wonders. Okay, so they prophesied in Jesus' name. I just want you to think about how many, I'm going to pick on televangelists tonight, okay? How many televangelists do you hear say, Jesus is Lord and in Jesus' name? They, They throw that banter around all the time. They cast out demons in Jesus' name. And we're going to talk about one that just I heard today cast out the demon of Ebola. And he has authority over Ebola. And he's taking authority over Ebola. It's not going to touch him or his ministry partners because he's, he's bound the devil of Ebola and it's not going to affect him. In Jesus' name, he said it like that. That's exactly how he said it. The third thing these guys do, or these people do, these deluded people claim to have worked signs and wonders. In Jesus' name. That word, mighty works, it's the word dunamis, where we get our word power. It can also be translated miracles. In other words, they had possibly healing ministries characterized by the supernatural. Just because you can heal somebody and do a supernatural miracle doesn't mean you're saved. Do you remember the magicians in Egypt? They could do miracles, but they weren't of God. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-10. The coming of the lawless one, that's the, the Antichrist or the man of sin or whoever you want to call him, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There are... The, 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 the Antichrist will come in the last day and be able to do false signs and wonders. So let me say it again, and let's let Jesus say it again. Prophetic abilities, casting out demons, 
and doing extraordinary miracles along with claiming that Jesus is Lord is no evidence that one is truly a Christian. But you think by what you see on Christian television that that's true. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now I'm going to pick on a televangelist. I'm going to mention him by name because as your pastor, I need to warn you of him. I went on Facebook yesterday and I saw that he's one of the top 10 paid pastors in the world. Something like his net worth, something like $50 million. He's got a private jet. He's based out of Dallas. It's the believer's voice of victory. It's Kenneth Copeland. Do you know who Kenneth Copeland? Him and his wife, Gloria. And I saw a YouTube video yesterday of him back in August taking authority over Ebola. I don't know how you do that, but he says, I claim in Jesus' name that we're not going to get Ebola. And basically his point was, if you're part of his ministry, you're under his anointing. So basically, if you give money to his ministry, you're not going to get Ebola. It's basically the bottom line of, of what that is all about. His mantra, do you guys know what Kenneth Copeland's mantra is? If you've been around him long enough? He's been around forever. What's on his pulpit? What's on his believer's voice of victory? What's on the banner? Every time you see him speak, What's the big thing that's, that says, that's front and center? Jesus is Lord. Okay, many will say to, on that day, Lord, Lord. Now, let me ask you about his theology. Let me tell you about his theology. This comes from the power of the tongue. Quote, God used words when he created the heavens and the earth. Each time God spoke, he released his faith the creative power to bring words to pass. That's the basis for their belief system. It's called word of faith. God had faith in his words. You have faith in your words, and when you use words, it makes God do things. If you say bad things, bad things will happen to you. If you say good things, God's bound to have good things happen to you because there's power in your words. Quote again, God cannot do anything for you apart or separate from faith. Faith is God's source of power. God can't do anything for you unless you have enough faith. Well, how many of you guys have a lot of faith on days when you're struggling? God must not be able to do anything for you then. It's all up to you. Now, this is from his view about Jesus. Quote, Why does God have to pay the price for this thing? He has to be a man. That is like that first one. It's got to be a man. He's got to be all man. He cannot be God and come storming in here with attributes and dignities that are not common to man. He can't do that. It's not legal. He just denied the deity of Christ. Now, he also believes that he is a little God. Jesus himself supposedly told Copeland this in the following prophecy. Quote, Don't be disturbed when people put you down or speak harshly and roughly of you. I'm giving you this like Texas accent. They spoke that way of me. 
Should they not speak that way of you? The more you get to be like me, capital M, the more they're going to they're gonna think that way of you. They crucified me for claiming that I was God, but I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed I walked with him, and then he was in me. Hallelujah. Jesus didn't claim he was God. Okay? Every Christian is a God. You don't have a God in you. You are one. What did Jesus do on the cross? Quote, He took upon himself the nature of Satan. And I'm telling you, Jesus is in the middle of that pit. He's suffering all there is to suffer. There is no suffering left. Apart from him, his emaciated little wormy spirit is down on the bottom of that fame. The devil thinks he's got him destroyed. But all of a sudden, God started talking. Where did Jesus suffer? According to Kenneth Copeland, it's not on the cross. It's in hell where Jesus takes on the wormy spirit of Satan and becomes the first born-again believer and rises from the dead. Quote, That word, the living God, went down into that pit of destruction and charged the spirit of Jesus with resurrection power. Suddenly his twisted, death-wracked spirit began to fill and come back to life. Jesus was born again, the firstborn from the dead. He whipped the devil in his own backyard. Kenneth Copeland may say Jesus is Lord and may have authority over devils and Ebola, but he's denied the divinity of Christ. He's denied the atonement of Christ. And he claims that we are little gods. Is that heresy? Is that denying dogma? We're not just talking dog, doctrine here. Is that, do, is that dogmatic heresy? Is that rank heresy? And supposedly, he's able to control the weather because when he flies in his private jet, he commands hurricanes and tornadoes to stay away from his jet so he can get to places safely. Okay? Just because you claim Jesus is Lord and just because you can prophesy and just because you can cast out demons and just because you can do mighty miracles is that proof of anything. We see an example of Kenneth Copeland. What does Jesus say? Let's read it again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So, do not look at mere results. Look under the surface of a preacher or a ministry and see two things. Well, I would say three things. I put two things on there. The fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Beatitudes, and I would add a third one, sound doctrine. What has Jesus been talking about all along in this sermon? What are the Beatitudes? Poor in spirit, mourning over sin, blessed are the meek, hunger and thirsting after righteousness, being a peacemaker, being pure. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And then you have to have sound theology. In other words, you put these three together, the Beatitudes, the fruit of the Spirit, and sound theology, these three come together to be what I would call lasting fruit. That's the fruit. That's how you tell if a good tree's good or the tree's bad. That's what it means to do the will of the Father. 
So let me say it loud and clear. <laughs> if I haven't said it loud and clear enough. The truest evidence of genuine salvation is not in outward manifestations of the miraculous that may have outstanding results with many followers. Instead, the true evidence is in the consistent habitual display of the fruit of the Spirit and the Beatitudes. All those things are characteristic of authentic believers, right? All believers need to have good theology, right? All believers need to have passion for Jesus, and all believers need to be active in ministry. You can't be saved without those things, but just because you have those things doesn't mean that you're a genuine Christian. Okay, now let's get back to the text for a moment. There's two sets of claims. What's the first claim? These people are coming and they're claiming what? Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. We cast out demons. We prophesied. We did many miracles. Lord, Lord, that's our claim. That's our profession. We're professing. We're declaring. We're making this declaration. Okay, let's look at the second declaration. It's Jesus' declaration. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, first of all, this is very serious because Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the final day. What does he say? On that day. Verse 22. What day? What's the day we know of? The final day of judgment. On that final day. Secondly, this is key. Jesus says that he what? I never knew you. Not that I once knew you and forgot you or that I knew you and you lost it or I knew you and you walked away. He says, I... There was never a point in time when I knew you. Now, does that mean that Jesus is saying, I didn't know who you were? No, it's a special word. Knowing in the Bible is a special word for, for relationship. Now, listen to this, read it very carefully. What does Jesus say? I will declare to them. This is Jesus' public profession to the false converts' public profession. You see the give and take here? On that final day of judgment, the false conversion people are going to make the public profession. Lord, Lord, I'm publicly professing you as Lord. Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. Lord, Lord, they're, they're publicly professing. And then Jesus turns around and makes a public profession back to them. His public profession is, I declare to you, I never knew you. Now, does this mean that these were true believers who somehow lost their salvation? can't mean that there was never a point in time where jesus knew them the word knew does not mean simple knowledge of course jesus knows everyone because he's sovereign the word carries the idea of intimate fellowship that comes in our salvation here's the scary thing about this passage of scripture this is why it's so scary these people think they're saved what do they do on the day of judgment, they give their resume to Jesus. Well, Jesus, I called you Lord. I mean, I have good theology. And Lord Jesus, I'm passionate. Lord, Lord. And, and, I, and I've had ministry success. There's an interesting passage of Scripture in John 10, 25-27. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he flat out says to the Pharisees, 
I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says to the sheep, what does he say? The sheep hear his voice, and he knows them, and they do what? They follow me. 2 Timothy 2.19 But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, repent. Now, thirdly, Jesus cast them out of His presence in judgment. The Part from me. In the original Greek language, the word depart doesn't mean like Jesus sends you to your room or says, you know, kind of get out of my sight for a little while. It's a very strong way of saying you're going to be cast into hell on the final day of judgment. You're going to the lake of fire and there's no chance. I never knew you. It's the day of judgment. It's final. Depart from me. Now, why are they sent out? Didn't they call Jesus Lord? Why would they go to hell? Didn't they have ministry success? Didn't they have good theology? Weren't they passionate? Why, why would Jesus send them to hell? He never knew them. And what does it say there? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. What do some of your other translations say? Does it say workers of iniquity? What's lawlessness? It's less the law, right? <laughs> what is lawlessness? In other words, no matter how much they talked about Jesus or did things for Jesus, their habitual lifestyle was marked by opposition to God's moral law. There's a key in the original language you don't get in your English translations, but when he says workers, you guys tell me, workers of iniquity. It's a participle, but is it, what tense is it in? Is it in past tense? What would past tense say? You worked iniquity. If it was future tense, it would say you, you will work. What tense is it? It's present tense, which means in the, in the Greek language, when something's in the present tense, it means continual action. It's very important. So Jesus is saying it's your habitual lifestyle. It's the, it's the, it is your life. The, the constant working out of your life, your habitual life, the whole pattern of your life is to walk in fragrant disobedience to the moral law of God. Not that you make some sins here and there, not that you even commit major sins, but the pattern, the consistency, the habit of your life is that of being a worker of lawlessness. In other words, you don't repent. You don't desire to repent. 
if there was true conversion and you had a new heart, would you want to stay there? Let me just ask you a question. When, when you guys are in sin, don't, don't confess. This is not confession time, but let's just... When you're in sin, if you're truly a Christian, I think... I mean, if you're not a Christian, it doesn't bother you. But if you're truly a Christian and you're in sin, do you want to stay there? It gnaws at you. What were you going to say, Sonia? Well... any sin. The, the overall desire of a Christian's life is that I sin, and when I sin, I hate it, and it bothers me, and I want forgiveness, and I want to repent, and I want to be right with the Lord, and I want to mourn over this, and I want to walk in the freedom of the cross. That's the way a Christian thinks. How does a non-Christian think? Who cares? Who gives a flying flip? If I sin, I sin. I mean, they may, their conscience may be pricked for a season because they got caught. Well, I don't want to get caught. Well, I don't want to go to jail. But do they think about how it impacts their relationship with God? A non-Christian may not like to sin because it makes them feel uncomfortable, but do they think about God in the equation? That they've sinned against God. It breaks God's heart. It breaks God's law. No, a Christian in their heart wants to live a lifestyle of holiness. Paul says in Galatians 5, 19-21, the works of the flesh. Now, what did Jesus say? You are workers of lawlessness. And Paul says here, the works of the flesh, the works of lawlessness are evident. And he, he lists them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. If you can think of any other sin. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that mean that if you commit any of those sins, you're out? Those who do, present tense, those who make it a pattern and a lifestyle to live in unrepentant sin are in danger of not going to heaven. So, let's, let's talk about an issue. Can we, as adults, talk about an issue? What do you say to a person who struggles with same-sex attraction and has decided to embrace a gay lifestyle and to have homosexual intercourse, but yet says that God has no problem with it and I feel free to do whatever I want because God loves me the way I am? What do you say to a person like that? Well, how dare you be unloving to pronounce them not a Christian? You're, you're judging. You have sin in your life. How are you to judge? I mean, you, you go out and get drunk on the weekends. You're sinning. Or you gossip at the workplace. You're, you're just as much a sinner as I am. Who are you to stand in judgment of me? What's the key? It's repentance. It's a continual lifestyle of repentance. If you are truly a Christian, and I, be I believe this at the bottom of my heart, if you are a Christian and you are in a lifestyle like that, God is going to, by His grace, get you out of it. It may be painful. It may be hard. You may incur discipline, but He's going to get you out of it. But if you continue in that, and you continue in that, 
and you continue in that, what does Paul say right here? You're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. No matter how good it makes you feel or no matter how confident you are in your ability for God to love you, the Bible is very clear. Unrepentant, habitual sin against God's moral law may be evidence that you are not a Christian. And that's not a popular statement, what I've just said. I've alienated like 90% of our town when I say things like that. But I'm not saying it. What does Jesus say right here? I mean, that frightens me as a pastor to think about the people that I've shared Christ with or even the people that have been in our church or people that I know that I knew, maybe even read their Bible, confessed Jesus as Lord, got baptized, got passionate, and on the day of judgment, Christ is going to send them to an eternal hell because they did not repent. It's sobering. So, Let's come full circle to where we started. Shallow evangelism on the front end has produced false converts. Because what often happens is we want to present a quick and easy have your best life now, Jesus, without explaining sin, repentance, God's wrath, hell, the need to give your entire life to Christ. And when we don't explain that on the front end, and we just give people a quick prayer to prayer and, and, and a couple of words to say and just tell them, you know, everything's going to be okay, we've set them up to not truly understand what happens. And here's what Southern Baptists in particular have been guilty of. We make it real easy for a person to become a Christian in some Southern Baptist churches. You walk to the front, you say a prayer, you shake the pastor's hand, he turns around and presents you saved to the congregation like he's the Pope or something. I grew up in that culture. You might not even know who the guy is. Somebody comes down, they cry a few tears, and all of a sudden they're saved. You know, let's, let's get him baptized. I was listening to something the other day about a church leader who was bemoaning the fact that baptisms are down in our denomination. We're not getting as many baptisms as we used to have. And we need to do something. So here's two suggestions he made to help increase baptisms. Number one, at vacation Bible school or any kids event, when a child prays the prayer, baptize them right then without their parents' permission so they don't go home and, get, and lose it so you can baptize them right then and there. Anybody have a problem with that? Okay. Number two, he said, we've made baptism too difficult. You know, people are really busy on Sunday mornings and they go to the lake and they go to the mountains. Why don't you as pastor just go with them to the lake and then baptize them at the lake on their vacation and then come back and tell everybody they got baptized? Okay. You know why the reason the baptisms are down in our denomination? This is my belief. If you look at the annual church profile, the annual church profile is, is, is the profile that we've got to turn in every year. We don't have to, but we do it, that reports baptisms. There's a category on there, believe it or not, for six and under. Six years old and under. It's by age grouping. For the past 20 years, do you know what the largest number of baptisms in our denomination has been? Six and under. So we're, we're functioning Presbyterians. I mean, we say we're, I mean, basically we're baptizing infants. But here's what's happening. 
You've got more pastors like me that are coming out of seminary and have been around for a while that say, you know what? We're going to actually baptize people that show credible professions of faith, and we may wait a little longer. We may baptize maybe at 10, 11, 12. So we may not see as many baptisms, but they may stick because we're actually baptizing true converts. That's my opinion is why baptisms are down. Or it could mean we're not doing as much evangelism as we could. Either way you look at it, we've done bad evangelism on the front end and we haven't explained the true gospel. Somebody stands up on a Sunday morning and says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you're sitting out there, you're thinking, well, that's awesome. God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. So I, I might as, there's nothing wrong with me. I might as well not, I'm not a sinner. I don't need to repent. This sounds like a great thing. Oh yeah, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If you want to really have Jesus be your co-pilot and you really want to have your best life now and you want Jesus to give you purpose and give you meaning, then would you come to the front and repeat this prayer after me? Dear Lord, I love you. I ask you into my heart. Amen. Pronounce you saved. All right, you're saved. Never question your salvation. Write it in your Bible on this date and put a stake in it in case the devil ever comes and, and makes you doubt your salvation. Then you were saved on this day and you walk out the door and were you told the true gospel? Were you told anything about repentance? Were you told anything about how you're a sinner and need Jesus? Were you told anything about the wrath of God to come? Were you told anything about the substitutionary atonement of Christ? What were you told? Say these few things to go through the happy hops to get into heaven so that we can feel good about our evangelism. So how do we respond in light to these frightening words? Number one. We must base our assurance of salvation upon Christ alone and not upon any ritual or experience we may have had in the past. What saves you? Or who saves you? Does going forward in an altar call save you? Does raising your hand when the evangelist says raise your hand? Does signing a card, does being confirmed or does being being baptized save you? Now, those may be some things that were used by God to bring about your salvation, but those aren't what saves you. And a lot of people base their assurance on what they did as a ritual, whatever background you're from. Every time the word believe is used in the Gospel of John, it's in the present tense, which means an ongoing lifestyle of believing. So our assurance of salvation is not based upon what we did in the past, as important as that is. Our assurance of salvation is what, we're, what we did in the past, but what we're continuing to do in the present. Are you still believing in Jesus? Are you still obeying Jesus? Are you still bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Do you still desire to repent? I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody in my office that comes in and their life's a mess. I mean, they, they, they show no evidence of salvation. I mean, literally, they potty mouth, they got issues, they're sleeping with their boyfriend, multiple, mar- you know, multiple, just, just their life is, you look at their life and you say, okay, that does not look anything like a godly life. And I, and I begin to ask the probing questions. Okay, tell me about your relationship. I don't say, I never say, tell me how you got saved. I don't use that question. What I say to them is, tell me about your relationship with Christ. I leave it open-ended. And a lot of them will say, well, I believe in God. Okay. 
A lot of them will say, well, I went to vacation Bible school when I was five and I got baptized. Okay, that's all fine and good. Tell me about your relationship with Christ right now. Silence. They can't tell me anything. They can tell me what they did 20 years ago, but there's no evidence today that they're believing and they're repenting. So we need to base our assurance not upon things we may have done in the past, but upon Christ. And number two, you won't hear this a lot of times in churches, but I think it's biblical. We must be constantly examining ourselves in light of Scripture. I, was, I grew up in a culture where I was told, never doubt your salvation, never question your salvation. And I don't know if that's healthy. Now, I don't think you should walk around as a true Christian being fearful that you're saved, but we have two verses that Paul gets, one's Paul and one's Peter. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul flat out says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Does that sound like, that's pretty explicit, isn't it? Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, indeed, unless you fail to meet the test. We are given permission, not even given permission, we're commanded here to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. How do you do that? Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. How do you examine yourself? Well, I think the best way to examine yourself is to go through the book of 1 John, and he gives a list of tests that are true for a Christian. And you put your life through the grid of those tests and you ask yourself, not am I perfect in these, but do I show a consistency? And ultimately it comes down to this. Do I show a consistent lifestyle of repentance and obedience to God's word? That's the bottom line. I mean, I can't make it any simpler than that. Does your life show a consistent repentance and obedience to God's word? Here's number three. We must never substitute activity for Christ as union with Christ. I've, there's a lady that I engaged with on Facebook the other day. I went across her Facebook and I saw some weird stuff. Some stuff that was like new agey, kind of weird. And here's the sad thing about it. She was Aiden's Sunday school teacher at my former church when we first went there that shared the gospel with Aiden when she was little. All three of her kids were in my youth group. Her husband was the chairman of our deacons. She was a godly Christian woman. She and her husband got divorced right, right after we came to Emmanuel, and she went off the deep end and so I sent her this Facebook message, private messenger. I said, I hardly ever go to your Facebook, but it just popped up to me today, and I just saw some things that were disturbing. As one that used to know you, as your friend who loves you and your family, as the former youth pastor to your kids, how is your relationship with Jesus right now? I'm praying for you. Where are you spiritually? And she wrote me back and said, Thanks for the reply. We love you and your family. Tell Don hello. I have a new life now. My other life is different, but now I'm different. Not that what was in the past was bad, but the one stream that's through both of them is love. 
And that's what she wrote. I fear for her soul on the day of judgment because she professed Jesus as Lord. She presented the gospel to children. She taught vacation Bible school. She was in leadership. And now she's doing some weird stuff. And she was active in ministry. And sometimes Christians can be so active in ministry, doing ministry, that they don't stop and realize that it's not what you do for Jesus as much as who you are in Jesus. Okay? But I think the most important thing is this. We must realize that what God really wants is not our mere profession, not our passion, not our works or anything else, but our hearts and submission to Him. He wants our hearts. He wants us all. I want to give you a, a, a quote from John MacArthur. He says, Pursuing a standard of perfection does not mean that we can never fail. It means that when we fail, we deal with it. Those with true faith will fail. And in some cases, fail pathetically and frequently. But a genuine believer will, as a pattern of life, be confessing sin and coming to the Father for forgiveness. Perfection is the standard. Direction is the test. If your life does not reveal growth and grace and righteousness and holiness... You need to examine the reality of your faith, even if you believe you've done great things in the name of Christ. What Jesus really wants is not our theology alone. That's very important. Not our passion alone. That's very important. Not in our ministry activity alone. What he wants is all of us in surrender and repentance. If Jesus is not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And so these warnings here are for us as true believers to always come back to the gospel. Any questions on that before we move on to the last warning in the sermon? All right, let's, let's look at how he closes the sermon out. This is how he finishes the Sermon on the Mount. The whole thing ends on two builders. Let's see what he says. Let's see how he ends the sermon. Ends it with this powerful illustration. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Boom. Sermon done. No dimming of the light singing just as I am. It's boom. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. What does Jesus say? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now he comes and says to the final thing here, there's two types of builders. Now, let's first look at the similarity between the two builders, because there are some similarities. 
What are the similarities? What's the one thing that both of them did? Both of them heard the word of God, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, verse 24, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So the one thing that both had in common is they heard the words. Now, when Jesus talks about these words, I think he's referring to the entire sermon he's preaching, all the way back to the Beatitudes, in the the immediate context. Everyone who hears all the things I've just been preaching and does them is like the one who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears everything I've just preached and does not do them is like building your house on the sand. Okay? Number two, they both proceed to build a house after they hear the words of Christ. Both have confidence that what they're doing is God's business. Both of them have confidence that what they're going to do is going to last on the final day of judgment. Both of them feel like they're obeying. And probably both build in the same general direction, evidenced by their both being hit by the same storm. Which means that people can sit in the same experience, the same worship service, the same context, and hear the same exact message, and maybe even do a lot of the same things, but, but truly not be saved. And outwardly, these houses probably looked the same. So those are the similarities. But let's look at the obvious differences. One is wise. What does he do? He hears the word and actually obeys them. The other just hears the words and they go in one ear and out the other. It's what James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. I want, you to show, I want to show you what Luke's gospel says about this because I think Luke's gospel gives a little bit different insight. In Luke um, 6... Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the streams broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the streams broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. What's the difference? How does Luke make it sound a little different? The person that heard the word and obeyed it dug deep. The message of the gospel took root, it had a foundation, it had solid footing. And I believe the rock here that it's talking about, in the context, is Christ's word. I don't know where that quote came from. Oh, okay, no foundation. Okay, I'm I'm getting behind myself here. I believe the rock spoken of is a solid foundation of Christ's words. 1 John 2. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, whoever says, I know him, what does that sound like? Whoever says, Lord, Lord, whoever says, I know him, whoever says, I cast out demons, whoever says, I prophesied, whoever says, I did mighty works, but does not keep his commandments is a worker of lawlessness, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked. And then you've got a passage from Titus. We'll skip for the purpose of time. So, at the close of the sermon here, Jesus tells us, as the final illustration, what a life on the rock looks like. A life built on the rock is a life built on the Beatitudes. A life built on the rock is a life built on a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. A life on the rock is built on the narrow path of Christ. A life on the rock is built on obeying God's Word. And in direct opposition to that, a life built on sand is a life built on human pride or religious hypocrisy, impure hearts, the easy and wide path professing faith in Christ without truly having faith in Christ, self-deception. And here's the issue. Both men experience the same final judgment. The rains come, and that represents final judgment. Both of them had a life. Both of them had a house. But notice what had happened to the man whose house was built on the sand. Great was the fall of it. That's, that's a thud of the ending of the servant. Great was the fall of the man whose house was not built on the sand. It's final judgment. First Thessalonians, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We will not experience the wrath to come because our house will be built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word. And then I won't read Revelation, but at the very end there, if your name's not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will be thrown into the lake of fire and be judged in the second death. But if your name's found written in the book of life, in other words, if Jesus knows you, you'll escape. The ultimate reality is that the only foundation that will ever last is Jesus Christ himself. So that's how the sermon ends. But Luke doesn't end chapter 7 there. He provides a little commentary that I think is very telling. So let's read, the, 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 let's read how, the, how the, the very end here, okay? So we've looked at the entire sermon over the past four weeks. Verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What's their response to the sermon? Wow, that's some cool stuff. I've never heard anything like that. He has authority. It blew their minds. But do you see anything here that shows that the crowds responded in repentance and faith and built their life on the rock? Or were they just like, that was some cool words? Some evangelists today might actually look at that and say just because people were excited that they truly got saved. But does amazement or being challenged actually mean they were saved? The text gives no evidence of the crowds responding with poverty of spirit, mourning over their sin, 
confession of sin, repenting, submitting to Christ's lordship, or placing their faith in Christ. Can someone come into a worship service and leave being challenged but not be saved? Can they leave being, man, that was powerful. That was a good word. That really spoke to me. Yes. I think it happens every Sunday, sadly. What does Jesus say is truly going to last? The person who hears these words and does them. There's a consistent lifestyle. Sadly, many walked away and were not saved at this powerful sermon. A true believer will hear and obey. Now, let me give you some hope here, because this is kind of scary. You can actually face the judgment unafraid if you realize that the way into heaven, the narrow path, is through repentance and faith that sticks. And you don't create the sticking. The Holy Spirit is the one who's come and created this radical change in you where you have mourned over your sin and you continue to mourn over your sin. You've called out to Jesus to rescue you and you continue to call out to Jesus to rescue you. You desire to live under his lordship and this is the overall desire of your life. In other words, you are a habitual, what do we usually say? He's an habitual liar. He's an habitual whatever. A true Christian is a habitual repenter and believer. I repented, I am repenting, and I will continue to repent. I believed, I'm continuing to believe, and I will believe because the Holy Spirit has changed me from the inside out and has given me a new heart and a new ability, and by grace, through faith, I'm able to live the life that Christ has given me because he's made me a new creation. And I examine myself. How do you know you're saved? Sometimes Don and I have this conversation. You're saved based on what the Bible says about you. What does the Bible say? Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've repented of your sin and you've believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you've confessed that, and you've given your life to Christ, and you've trusted in Him, based upon the authority of God's Word, you can have the assurance that you're saved. That's the objective aspect of it. But there's a subjective aspect of it, and that is the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, and it's demonstrated by fruit. And also confirmation of other people. So now that Jesus has thoroughly scared us and ended this sermon, I mean, no, no wonder they said, no wonder they're like, we've never heard anything like this before. This is amazing. Because every week after we've been finishing these chapters, do you have a greater appreciation for the Sermon on the Mount now because of our time? Do you have any questions as we close these last six or seven minutes, ten minutes or so? It's one of those things where you almost kind of have to let it sit and sink.
Yeah. 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 I, yeah, and I, I can tell you a lot of stories of people that I know that were maybe saved in one of those weird mega churches, but that after they truly started getting the Bible, they left the church because they realized it was, and they found a Bible, more Bible-believing church. So I think that happens. Um, yeah, is, is that kind of your, like, they, 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 yeah. Yeah, here's the, the sheep still hear his voice, but here's the issue, and this is what I didn't have time to spend on. Turn to Jude for a minute if you've got... There is a huge judgment for false teachers. And in Jude... Well... You pick up in, in verse 12. Jude only has one chapter, so Jude 12, 1, 12. It's, the, la- it's the, the, the book right before Revelation. So Jude 12, this whole thing, basically Jude is basically saying, I was going to write to you guys about salvation, but there's a problem. These, these false prophets have crept in, and they're causing havoc in the church. And here's what these false prophets are doing. Verse 12, these, he's talking about false teachers, false prophets, wolves. They're hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds. What an image. Like they promise rain, but there's just no no substance. Swept along by the winds, fruitless trees. Does that sound familiar? Fruitless trees in late autumn. Twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I don't know what that all means, but I think it means this. There's going to be a darker and hotter place in hell for false teachers than just for your normal lost person. Jesus says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown to the bottom of the ocean than to lead one of these younger ones astray. So those people that are deceived and are not Christians in those churches, they will go to hell if they don't trust Christ. But I think those who are the teachers of them, who are the wolves, who are the false teachers, there's more accountability and stricter judgment on the day of judgment for them. Which means a couple things. Pray for those wacky televangelists who think they're saved and are not and have huge influence. And pray for the... that those that are under their teaching, that God would rescue people out of that. Just because something's popular, anointed, powerful, successful, has a great following, a lot of results, doesn't necessarily mean it's of God. And they may use Christianese. Look at Mormonism. All right. Any other questions? I have no idea where we're going next week. I, I mean, I have it written down on a sheet of paper, but I don't have it with me here tonight. So we're done with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go into some other teachings of Jesus. Oh, we're going into the parables next. So Matthew 13, the, the parables of the kingdom. So we're going to start talking about how do you interpret parables, what do these parables mean, and things like that. So um, that's where we're going to go next. All right, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed.
Father, our hearts are heavy after coming across this passage of Scripture. Lord, for a lot of reasons. Number one, because we are confronted with our own sin. But number two, there's many that we may know that fall into one of those categories. So Lord, I would pray that there would not be fear tonight among true believers, but there would be assurance of salvation. The Holy Spirit, you would bring comfort to the hearts of true believers tonight to let them know that they are saved by grace alone. But Lord, if there are those in this room tonight that aren't saved, they should be examining themselves and a little fearful. And Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction that leads to repentance in their hearts? We have been confronted with truth, Jesus. And so now we are without excuse. So help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers, and to do that by the grace that you give us and the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.